You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. Well, welcome back to our series that we've been in um, called Grace in the Dark, the Gospel According to Elijah and Elisha. If you have your Bibles or your devices, if you can turn to 2 Kings chapter 1. We're going from 1 Kings to 2 Kings this morning. And I titled today's message, Severity and Kindness. And the reason I called it Severity and Kindness is I believe that there are really two two sort of PR campaigns in modern Christianity, if I could say it like that. Uh, the, on, on the one side, uh, this is the, the larger side, is uh, when we bump up against sort of the holiness of God, it's, uh, it's ignored because God is a kind God who is disconnected from fury and severity. He's kind of the edited made-for-TV version. He is wise and he is old and he is loving, but he is out of touch and just kind of winks at sin. And that's probably the larger one and that's probably the more progressive uh, one today. And then on the, the other side of the spectrum, you've got a severe God with no kindness You can get close to him, but it's kind of like a cage fighter because as soon as you do, he's ready to pounce on you and pin you to the the mat. And so you've got this polarization taking place, not just in this issue and hundreds of other issues uh, today. And we really lack today the imagination of a category of both and as things get polarized more and more. And so we, we're looking for a third way this morning to think about how genuine love can assume moments of fury. And we lack a lot of illustrations about how, how love and fury, how kindness and severity can be together in the same place at the exact same time. Uh, in fact, as I was thinking this week about, I mean, what's, what's an illustration that everybody could, could lock in on? You know, the only one that, that came to my mind for North Dallas is the idea of the mama bear. You guys with me on the mama bear? Plenty of moms in North Dallas would say, I can relate to uh, being a mama bear because I'm going to protect fiercely my little cubbies and maul the face off of anybody that tries to, uh, to, to, to attack them or, you know, uh, influence them in a, in a wicked way or something like that. I don't know if there's any mama bears uh, in the room. I know, I know, actually, I know there are uh, in the room. I know you. So, um, yeah, I've, I've heard from them. So, so listen, I know, you, I know the mama bears in this, in this room. And uh, I can remember, I can remember as a freshman in high school riding shotgun with my mother and we avoided a head-on collision with a group of teenagers that we just barely missed. And I, I discovered that they were a group of teenagers as my mother backed up the car to unleash her mama bear fury on a group of senior girls that were in my journalism class that year. And I felt about how you would imagine I, I, in that moment, I said to myself, I would rather take the head-on collision (laughs) because Mama Bear is unleashing 
her fury and love. And I felt all the emotions of embarrassment mixed with protection. And I imagine that we will experience some of those emotions today as we get into 2 Kings chapter 1. If there is a moment of shock and awe or even an embarrassment at such holy display of God's fury, uh, I hope it also comes with a mixture of protection. Where there is evil and where there is wickedness, the Bible assumes that there is a God of true kindness that involves severity. And I believe that God is calling all of us today into a renewed rest in both the severity of God and the kindness of God. So we're going to look at verse 1 in chapter 1 of 2 Kings, and it starts very simply in the first verse, and we're going to have it up here uh, behind me as well. It says this, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now that's a very short sentence, but let me give you the back, background of what's going on. The Moabites had been subdued by good King David, but they had been gaining strength under wicked King Ahab for years, and they were waiting for an opportunity to pounce and to rebel and to, uh, to go against uh, the king, just waiting for that perfect opportunity. And at the death of Ahab, they had it. Now they are going to rebel against Israel. And when the nation needs the king the most, something bad happens in verse 2 to the newly minted king, the son of Ahab, who is Ahaziah. It says in verse 2, now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. Oh no, when the nation needs the king to step up, the king falls uh, through a screen in his upper chamber. We don't know what the king was doing. We don't know if he was walking around or climbing around or monkeying around or what he was doing, but he falls and we don't know what was injured either. Was it his back? Was it his legs? Was it his neck? We don't know, but we do know that he lay sick. And as he's sick, at the moment when he is in most personal need, and when the nation is in crisis, he sends messengers to do something. Well, what's he do? He sent messengers telling them to go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Uh, Ralph Davis, who I'll quote multiple times throughout today's message, said this. His appeal to Baal was not a knee-jerk reaction in a sudden emergency. Baal has always been Ahaziah's deity of choice. He has had no place for Yahweh. His idolatry was due to preference, not to ignorance or to weakness. We know that is true because the other place that Ahaziah shows up is in 1 Kings 22. And it says this about him. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and he worshiped him and he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. So in every way that Ahab had provoked the Lord and his wicked mother Jezebel had and their, you know, grandfather Jeroboam, every in every way, he provoked the Lord. And there, now, in his, on his deathbed, he is continuing to provoke the Lord by calling for Beelzebub. Now, 
if that sounds a little different than Beelzebul, who Ahab often went to and Jezebel went to, uh, that's a good catch on your part. Some scholars think the scribes are having a little fun here by removing a letter from Beelzebul, that means Lord of the earth, to Beelzebub, the Lord of a fly. So, you know, don't ever say nerds don't have fun because they do. So the scribes are having a good time here by just removing a little letter here just to, just to uh, rub, rub uh, you know, Ahaziah's face in, in, in it. So anyway, either way, the prefix of Baal, we're told, says it all. He, wa- he walked in the religious rut of his father as goaded by Jezebel. The king of Samaria thinks his hope for years to come squats in a temple 45 miles away from Philistia. That's where he is setting his hope, 45 miles away in another land with another king, the God of Ekron, the Lord of a fly. Well, well, in verse 3, here's what we see happens. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And it says, So Elijah went. Now Elijah is older now. Elijah has been called up many times into many fights and into many battles. You remember the, the even last week in the Moab and uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the, what am I thinking of? The, the Mount Carmel incident and multiple other times. I mean, he's constantly, constantly being called up by God. And here he is again being called up now in, in his older age and to a younger king. And so he goes and a fight is about to break out. And the fight is going to be between Ahaziah's messengers, which are many, and God's one messenger, old Elijah, who is now intercepting the apostasy. God moves and acts when a nation enters into apostasy. And sometimes it's not the, 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 the multiple armies, sometimes it's an old prophet, but he still acts. One guy says that God doesn't twiddle when apostasy is afoot. And so he calls up Elijah. He says to go, stop these messengers and tell them to go back home. And he does. In verse 5, it says, the messengers returned to the king. And he said to them, why have you returned? So Ahaziah is like, that was way too quick of a journey. I, I, I know something's wrong here because that should have taken you longer uh, than it did. And uh, that's a long journey. And here, you're already back here. And uh, something happened. And here's what happened. They, they report back. They said to him, well, uh, here's the thing, king. There came a man to meet us. And he said to us, go back 
to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. There was something about the prophet that frightened them enough to sort of abort the mission and go back to the king and report exactly what Elijah was told to say by God. They actually do that, and it's, it's pretty remarkable that the old prophet kind of gives these young guys a spanking, sends them back to the young king, and they do it. They go back to the king, and they report exactly what, what this prophet had told them. So God is with Elijah. It's clear and he is giving Elijah boldness and courage and words to say. And he convinces these guys to go back. Well, in verse 7, the king responds this way. He said to them, well, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Elijah's like, I think I know who this person is. I know about this man. My father encountered this man. My mother encountered this man. My whole family basically encountered this man. And uh, it sounds an awful lot like the guy I know. Well, they answered in verse 8, Well, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Now, if you have kids and you ask a direct uh, question and they don't give you a direct answer it's because they don't know and so uh, or they're you know they don't they they don't know how to, uh, to, to respond and so here's they don't know how to respond to this we didn't ask his name uh, but he intimidated us it was scary okay he wore a garment of air if you came across this guy out in the wilderness and a belt of leather around his waist it would have shocked and alarmed you and frightened you, and it basically frightened them. And so this is how, the, how they respond to, uh, to the king. We don't know his name. He wore this garment of hair, and he gave us this message, and we're reporting this message back to you. Well, the king knows exactly who it is. He says to him, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Elisha's now messing with me. Elijah messed with my father. He messed with my mother. And now he's messing with me. And so now the king is going to ramp it up. All right. So now we've got a royal rumble. We got a thriller in Manila. A heavyweight fight is going down. And so you can just imagine Welcome to the Jungle playing in the background because the king is about to send people to go get this Tishbite that is old now and messing around with his plans. And he's not having it. This young king is not having it. And so, in verse 9, we read, Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men and his 50. And he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Now, when he says, O man of God, at first glance, it can seem like he's being respectful but if 51 armed soldiers come to your house and they say, kind sir, uh, please get into the vehicle, you know they're not being kind and nice. Uh, they're being pleasant, but it's really mockery. Oh, man of God, the king says, you're coming with us. Come down now. 51 armed soldiers. 
Well, Elijah knows what's up. He knows what's going on. God knows what's going on. In verse 10, something very, very remarkable takes place where we see the fury and uh, power of God. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Just like that, God acted in power, in fury, and in judgment on these 51 soldiers coming to basically arrest the prophet. And so scholars, a lot of people call this Mount Carmel part two because it's God who sends the fire on Baal worshipers. Baal is considered in this day, just like it was at the first Mount Carmel incident, the first royal rumble, uh, the God of fertility and life and healing. That's who they worship. That's why they go to Baal is because he's supposed to be the one who brings the life. He's supposed to be the one who brings the healing. But here he is absent, just as absent as he was there. When, when it counts, when it matters, he's gone. He's absent. He doesn't exist. Baal is supposed to be the God of fire, the God of lightning, but he doesn't bring the fire down on the one messenger. It's God, Yahweh's servant who calls upon God, and God brings the fire down upon, upon Baal's servants. But unlike the first show, showdown, notice now the stakes are higher and the judgment is greater. Why is the judgment greater? It's because they know more. They know the stories. It was a generation ago, but they, everybody knew the stories of what happened at Mount Carmel. And the son knew better. They all knew better. And so now the stakes are higher. The fire doesn't just fall on the altar like it did at Mount Carmel 1. Now it's falling upon the soldiers themselves. So it is dramatic fury of God that falls down. And notice what happens next. You would think the king would respond differently, but kings don't typically do that. Verse 11, again, it says, again, the king sent to him another captain. This is how boldly sinful Ahaziah is. 51 guys just got toasted. And it says the king doesn't care. He says, send another group another captain of 50 men with his 50. And so he answered. He goes and he answers and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. It's almost like Ahaziah got in his ear and he said, okay, this time I want you to really emphasize that King Ahaziah is telling you to come down from the mountain. Don't worry about what happened to that other group of 50. I don't know what that captain was up to, but you're a new guy. You're my guy. You're my captain. And I want you to tell them this is the king's order. Come down now. Some translations say right now. And, and come on back. Well, verse 12, Elijah answered them and says, 
If I am a man of God, it's interesting that they called him, O man of God, again, mocking the prophet again. He says, well, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now we've got a death count, if my math is accurate, of 102 and increasing by the minute. You would think the king now would say, I relent, let the prophet go his way, whatever he wants to say, he can say. But the kings don't often do that. And in verse 13, it says, again, again. The king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up, and notice what he does. He came and fell on his knees before Elijah. Good call. Good decision. Wisdom. He falls on his knees and he entreated him, oh man of God. And I got to believe his tone is a little different than the other two captains. He says, oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. I imagine if I'm one of the soldiers in the third group of 50, I'm really grateful for this captain right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your posture before the old prophet. He says, please let my life and these 50 servants be precious in your sight. Uh, and it says, behold, fire came down from heaven, he says, and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50, but now let my life be precious in your sight. So he humbles himself, really humbles himself before God in humbling himself before the prophet. Uh, uh, unlike the other captains, this captain knows whose life is in danger now. The other two captains thought Elijah's life is clearly in danger. Now he understands my life is in danger. My men's lives are all in danger. It's not him because God is on his side and God is not on my side. And notice what happens in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with them. And do not be afraid of him. That's an interesting concept because you could imagine Elijah, because it kind of reads a little bit like he could be this callous prophet that doesn't care about the deaths of, of these people, that he's just fearless. He's not. He's not fearless. Elijah's never been fearless. Remember when he was running away from the first Mount Carmel incident, he just gets to this place where he said, I've had enough. Just let me die. I'm Afraid, He was afraid of Jezebel's announcement that he, I'm going to kill you. So he, he dealt with fear often. He's dealing with fear right now. And God is ministering to him and says, don't be afraid of him. Go down with him. So he arose and he went down with him to the king. And what's he say to the king? He said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, the fly god, is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up. 
but you shall surely die. Elijah doesn't soften it. He doesn't change it. He doesn't, you know, move the story around a little bit to make it palatable to the king. He says exactly what God had told him to say, and he says it boldly, and God is giving him the courage to say what needs to be said. You know, the, the third captain is terrified, and the king is not. And sometimes we can read into this and say, is it right that the, you know, God shows mercy on this third captain because he was terrified? Shouldn't there be other better motivations for him to, you know, humble himself before God? Well, Davis in his commentary says, there's nothing wrong with terror so long as it is true terror. For that can become, as it did for him, a saving terror. Better to be trembling and alive than a puddle of carbon. He is terrified, and that terror leads to a saving terror for him and his men. Well, the king has no terror in his heart. Even as he's facing down the prophet, there is no terror in his eyes. John Newton wrote the song, Amazing Grace. You remember this line? "'Twas grace that made my heart to fear, and grace my fears removed." Grace operates both ways. Some of you came to Christ uh, first motivated by fear, and, uh, but you came to Christ. You came to Christ. And that grace made, that made your heart to fear also was the same grace that your fears removed. Well, the king has no fear of God, and God does not take away his punishment. This is how the story ends, verse 17. So he died. He died just as God said he was going to die. He died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son, no legacy. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? That's how the story ends. David says there's something haunting then about this record of Ahaziah's brief tenure. In the supreme need of his life, he did not seek the real God. And that's all that we know about him. That is both sad and stupid. That's both sad and stupid. The most supreme need of his life, that's, that's his legacy. His legacy is he did not seek God when he needed to seek God and he caused a lot of death and destruction in the process. So as, as we've walked through this together, you might ask the question, well, who do I most identify with in this story? And I think it's possible that as we're going through this, the Lord could be bringing a conviction to somebody who could say, you know, even in a room like this, maybe even online, where you're, you're saying, I am Ahaziah, trusting in a false god or leaning that way, or exploring some false god. It's very possible. It's very possible that you're looking for a, a god of power and submission like my Muslim friends would, but a god that lacks grace. Maybe like my Hindu friends, maybe a god of fortune, or a god of good health, or maybe a god of your own imagination that you've been creating. Maybe you are the God on your throne, and you're trusting in yourself and what you can navigate and what you can do, that would be what Ahaziah's problem.
problem was. Uh, in addition to his love and trust in the god of Ekron, the tiny fly god that has no power. Or maybe you could easily see yourself as Elijah because maybe it's possible that God's called you right now in this moment of your life to obey him despite fear. And, and there's something that you need to trust God in despite your fear. Acknowledge that to him just like Elijah had to be ministered, to by, be ministered by God in that fear and obey God boldly. So God be, could be calling you like Elijah or you could be, hey, you could be a really smart person who is following a really wicked leader like these captains. And you have an opportunity to humble yourself before God and fear God more than you would fear some wicked influence or some wicked leader in your life that you're tempted to obey and follow to your own destruction. So it's very possible that you could be reading through this and, and the Lord could be bringing conviction and say, that's where you're at. That's, that's who you are. But regardless of if that's you or, or not, I think there's really a, some broad application we can all take from this. And it comes from Romans 11:22, And I have it up here on the screen behind me. It's very simple. It's a very simple verse. But if we take it to heart as an application to this passage, as we kind of close and wrap up, I think it's really important. It says this in Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. This word note then is really important. It's the same word that John the Baptist used when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's a word that means to look and to listen. Literally, Paul used this word in Galatians when he said, Listen, when he was just breaking down the gospel. Uh, it, it means to consider. The disciples used the word whenever Jesus spoke plainly and wasn't using figurative speech. The disciples literally said, ah, it's translated ah, now you're speaking plainly to us. And God is speaking plainly to us in this verse and in this story to behold his kindness and his severity all together in one place. So let's do that as we close. Let's behold the severity of God. I have a quote up here from another, this guy I've been quoting multiple times in this sermon. He says, above all, Yahweh is an intolerant God. The suave, self-appointed connoisseurs of religious tastes in our time will be aghast if ever they happen on this story. How can Yahweh in his wild, untamed holiness sentence a man to death simply for exercising his religious preference in a critical hour of his life. Yahweh here is not the democratic sort of God people crave, according to the polls. Our times would prefer the mythology of the ancient Near East, where gods and goddesses were permissive and casual and never insisted upon exclusive loyalty. None of the deities thought it a mortal sin should one of his or her devotees want to be ecumenical in his devotion. 
But in the Bible, we meet Yahweh and keep bashing ourselves against his first commandment. That first commandment is that you shall have no other gods. Nor is it any better in the New Testament. Jesus goes around insisting folks must smash idols if they would follow as disciples. He's, he is as obnoxious as Yahweh. Who does he think he is? Now, Jesus insisted on exclusivity. Make no mistake about it. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That can sound very exclusive, and that can sound very obnoxious, and you can bash your head against that obnoxious exclusivity of Jesus all day long, and he will still be the way, and he will still be the truth, and there is no life apart from Jesus. No one comes to God except through him. So behold the severity of God, but behold the kindness of God. The disciples were so aware of this story in Luke 9 that it says as they were on their way to Jerusalem, on their way, Jesus, to the cross, he'd set his face towards the cross, towards Jerusalem, and then he's rejected by the Samaritans. I wonder if you remember the story. He's rejected by the Samaritans. They say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And they're expecting Jesus to be proud of them. Oh, you remember the story of Elijah. Good job. He doesn't. He turns and he rebukes them. He stops. That's what that means. He stopped. And he looked them eyeball to eyeball. And he rebuked them for their callous hearts. And for them inserting themselves in this place of Elijah. It, the story wasn't about Elijah. The story was about the power and the holiness of Yahweh showing his power in a moment in order for people to repent, even though they didn't do it. And so he rebukes his disciples. I don't know exactly what he said, but maybe he quoted from Ezekiel 33 that says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, and why will you die, O house of Israel? God created us to know him and to be with him, and it's our sins that moved us away from this relationship with God. And Jesus pays the price for our sin at the cross. He literally receives the fire of God's judgment onto himself. And when he receives the fire of God's judgment, do you remember that he cried out, with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this story shows up even there. As some of the bystanders hearing it say, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And the other said, wait, wait, let's see. Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Well, Elijah is as silent as Baal because Elijah can't rescue Jesus. Because Elijah needs to be rescued by Jesus. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, including Elijah, 
that he might bring us to God by faith and by repentance. repentance. And it's that kindness of God in the backdrop of his fury that leads us to repentance, Romans 2 tells us. David says, if Yahweh is severe, it's at the same moment he's merciful. His nasty interruption of Ahaziah's mission is, if the king could only see it, a last opportunity. Yahweh did not allow Ahaziah's idolatry to proceed in peace, but invaded his space and rubbed his face in the first commandment again. Again, we see our uncomfortable God, Yahweh's furious, not tolerant, holy, not reassuring, loving, not nice. But there is love in his fury. He won't let you walk the path of idolatry easily. His mercy litters the way with roadblocks. Listen, that's the story of my life. My life is a story of God littering my way with roadblocks of his mercy until I come to him. I wonder if you can relate to that story. And I have to say, if you've never trusted in Jesus, I, I think there is an appropriate warning here. You could say, I'll put it off. I'll, I'll wait. I'll, I'll do it later. I'll do it on my deathbed. Ahaziah is on his deathbed, literally. And I need to say this. More time and more knowledge of God does not mean more wisdom. Here's the king, we're told, perhaps near life's end. At, the, at least his request suggests Ahaziah knew it could be his last illness. And in this desperate moment, we hear, go inquire of Beelzebub. The moment so crucial, the recourse so asinine. The specter of death does not necessarily produce good sense. Listen, how do you know that you're not in a desperate moment today? How do you know that? You don't know that. How do you know you're not going to be a desperate moment tomorrow? How do you know you're going to think clearer tomorrow if you're thinking clearly today? That's presumptuous and silly and foolish and stupid. How do you know you're going to be more inclined to turn to God tomorrow? How do you know that you're going to have more sense? How do you know your heart's not going to grow dull and hard like it did to Ahaziah? Listen, if your heart is soft to Christ, if you hear his voice today, we're told in Hebrews 3, don't harden your heart. Don't put it off. And I think that's how we could all consider as we, as we apply this last point. It's just to turn all of us from the silly and the stupid idols to a resurrected Savior, to a living God. Uh, Raymond Dillard says, sin's not simply rebellion. It's irrational. It's stupid. It's poor reasoning. It's wrong-headed rebellion. That's what it is. He says, human beings will turn in almost any direction and pursue any religious cult or philosophical movement that promises to relieve the terror of the unknown. When you, when you experience the terror of the unknown, we will go anywhere and any place and believe nearly anything and reach for any silly and stupid God, just like Ahaziah. Like Ahaziah, he says, they will seek, we will seek almost anything but the Lord. So ask yourself this, what's the irrational, what's the stupid thing that I'm turning to in my life right now instead of the Lord? And it could be any number of things. Maybe you're reaching for success or financial hope out here. Maybe it's a political hope. Maybe it's an escape of some kind that 
others know about, maybe nobody knows about. Maybe it's a dependency. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's some, some thrill or sexual immoral thing that is silly and stupid, but you keep turning to it in your times of desperation. In the terror of the unknown, what do you send for? Who do you send for? What advice are you reaching for? Who are we asking for if we're going to recover, if we're going to get out of this bed? And to all those questions, as we remember the severity and the kindness of God, shouldn't this question be asked of us as we close? Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? If you'll stand with me, I think we should end with a prayer like that. We should let that truth just speak over anything that is really sad and really small and honestly just really stupid that we'd be reaching for in a time of desperation. Maybe there is a real fear that you're battling today, a fear of the unknown, the terror of the unknown. And, and when we experience that fear, we experience that, we will reach for nonsensical, wrong-headed, irrational, stupid things. And so it's appropriate that we, we say, man, there is a God in Israel. There's a God who is inclined to hear our requests. And right now he is eager to hear. He's eager to know. He's eager for us to share that with him. He's eager for us to come to him. And he's leaning towards us in his love and his mercy. And isn't that, isn't that wonderful that right now we can turn to that God and know that he is with us and for us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the way and the truth and the life. And we recognize that there is a God who is powerful, who is severe, but who is also kind. And it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Severity of God wakes us up, and we, we want to be awake today. And we pray for anybody who is hearing this that's not awake, that you'd wake them up by your severity. But it is your kindness at the cross that leads us to repentance. Lord, it's at the cross that we see love and mercy mingled in the blood that flowed down. And so, Lord, we come running to the cross today. We come running to a God full of grace, mercy, love, and power. There's a God in Israel today, and to you we inquire. To you we return. To you we go. We want to turn aside from the silly and the nonsensical and turn to a God who actually can do the impossible in our lives. We love you. We trust you. As we sing, we look to you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 